Hello, this is Curtis Edwards, Vice President of Investor Relations at Hudson Investing. Are you ready to start building your multifamily portfolio? Kent and I are excited to announce our newest deal in Spartanburg, South Carolina. This 157-unit property offers a unique chance to acquire a B-class value-add property for just $120,000 per door. This is well below replacement costs. De-risking the deal even further is a favorable loan assumption with over six years remaining at 3.73% fixed. With 50 economic development projects underway and 70,000 jobs within a 20-minute drive, the South Carolina upstate region is primed for above-average job, population, and rent growth. Don't miss out on this exclusive deal. Find the link in the description notes to learn how you can invest. I think alternative investments, once you enter that space, it's all about networking. Alternative investments is a very broad topic. It's literally anything that's not traded, basically the public stock market. So it's it's mostly private securities. They're usually higher minimums. So you have to be a little bit more careful with your due diligence. So it, having a network and learning some basic underwriting skills are so critical when it comes to alternative investments. Welcome to Right Around Real Estate, the show about how to passively invest like a pro. On each episode, I interview real estate experts who give their top investing advice, strategies, and tools, and I break down their insights into practical steps to avoid the pitfalls and make better investments. I want to help you passively invest like a pro. This is Ritter on Real Estate, and I'm your host, Kent Ritter. Hello, fellow investors. Welcome back to an episode of Ritter on Real Estate. We teach you how to passively invest like a pro. Today, my guest is Dennis Shapiro. Dennis began investing in real estate back in 2012, and he's built a cash flowing portfolio, including many alternative assets, such as note and ATM funds, mobile home parks, life insurance policies, tech startups, industrial property, short-term rentals, and more. He co-founded an investment club for accredited investors in 2019, and then he launched SIH Capital Group, and which provides accredited investors with a simplified strategy to invest for passive income. In addition to all that, he's the author of the Alternative Investment Almanac, which is the expert's guide on building personal wealth in non-traditional ways in 2021. So Dennis, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah. So obviously we've got a lot to unpack today. Uh, and I love getting you know folks on there, such experienced investors to, to share their knowledge uh, with the group. But before we, we dig in, why don't you just tell us a little bit more about who you are and how you got to where you are today? Sure. Um, I actually, I started investing in real estate in 2012, but even before that, uh, in high school, I think 2004, 2005, I started buying my first traditional, I think it was like a mutual fund. Uh, my older, my oldest brother gave me a copy of Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And he, he was about eight years older than me. He read it. He was totally hooked. And we have like a very uh, brainwashed family type of thing. So if we find something that's good, we try to really hammer it home to the rest of the siblings. Um, so I read the book. I wasn't a big fan of the book at that time. I was, I think I was only 14 at that time, but I was like, all right, I have to buy an asset though. 
And I just didn't like the book just because I felt like he was making more money from his talks than what he's actually saying in the book. Later on, I reread the book, you know, a hundred times, really loved the book. But at 14, I remember not liking the book, but remembering that I need to buy an asset. So I started, uh, you know, I started buying mutual funds at that time. And I remember the first one I bought, I had like a pizzeria job. I saved money for like the whole month. Uh, just to buy one mutual fund. And I followed it along for the whole year, expecting to be rich by the end of the year. And I think it went up by like $7 or something like that. So it was a really <laughs> wasteful of a compounding uh, year. Uh, but I started, you know, getting more into the traditional side. I started uh, looking into stock pickers and I went the Warren Buffett route, the Peter Lynch route. And I kept, um, I kept experimenting with different strategies on the traditional side. And what I realized was my portfolio would never be the way I want it to be because it never produced income and appreciation at the same time. Uh, I didn't feel like the dividend stocks did their job. I tried different traditional strategies like bond and, and uh, like a portion bond, portion stocks. And I tried utilities and I tried MLPs and REITs, you name it. I tried it and it all failed on the traditional side. And what I realized is that I would have years of, um, basically yield get wiped out over one market correction. So what I, what I kind of got to the point after I think 10, 15 years of being in traditional assets was that it's great for appreciation. If you buy, if you buy like a low cost index fund, it doesn't really take much brain power. You could kind of set it and forget it. And at the same time, when I was coming to this realization, I was starting to build up this alternative investment portfolio where I was looking at it. I was like, wow, you know, this stuff is really not volatile, not volatile because these are private securities. The cash flow is so much better. And at first I was really kind of trying to keep them separate and be like, well, I have a traditional portfolio and I have an alternative portfolio. And when things really started clicking was actually combining the two and realizing I should have a traditional and alternative portfolio where I could use 1% of my brain power and get decent appreciation with my traditional side. But then I could use 99% of my brain power when it comes to the due diligence side of alternative investments and networking and learning basic underwriting and all of that stuff that comes along with alternative investments. And I married the two and I kind of got the yield I really wanted while getting um, you know, a, a good balance of what exactly I was going for. Gotcha. So you've, you've developed a portfolio that's a mix, a diversified portfolio. You've got your traditional stocks, mutual funds, you've got your alternative assets over here, and you're, you're kind of relying on, on, on the stocks from an appreciation standpoint and, and relying more on your traditional assets uh, for, for cash flow as well. Is that general? I mean, I imagine there's appreciation on that side too, but is yeah. that your main cash flow source? Yeah, so the alternative investments I look at as your cash flow, um, cash flow plays. Um, and it's more, it's it's not as much about like combining cash flow and and appreciation. It it ended up being more of like a time management thing where I knew I didn't need too much time if I picked like a low cost index fund. And then I could spend a lot of time developing my network, developing, uh, you know, all the things that you really need to be successful in the passive investment world. Gotcha. So it's more about putting the, the traditional piece through an index fund kind of on autopilot and then allowing you instead of actively picking stocks and trying to do that thing, allowing you really to focus on the alternative assets and, and doing the diligence there. Exactly. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, 
great. That, I think that makes a ton of sense. And how do you, um, you spoke a little bit of, about it, but, but how do you find your, your alternative investment opportunities? So I, I think alternative investments, once you enter that space, it's all about networking. Um, alternative investments is a very broad topic. Uh, it's literally anything that's not traded on basically the public stock market. So mm -hmm. it's, it's mostly private securities. They're usually higher minimums. So you have to be a little bit more careful with your due diligence. So it, having a network and learning some basic underwriting skills are so critical when it comes to alternative investments. Uh, most of the operators I've sourced were directly from my network, network, uh, network. And then it's just about you start picking up trends as you start investing in more deals, which markets uh, are producing better returns and which business plans uh, work better than others, you know, and you have to see like, hey, that's a class C asset, you should have a class C type of business plan uh, to go along with it. Uh, so it, it, it's all about uh, actually uh, networking with alternative investments, much, much more so than the traditional side. Gotcha. Yeah, ab absolutely. You got to go out and find those investments, right? So, so what are some of the sources that you've used uh, to build out your network? So the, I, I started off kind of using LinkedIn. When I started from like zero, I remember I just added like real estate investor in, in underneath my title. And all of a sudden I started getting like borderline spam messages uh, from brokers and insurance guys. And, you know, uh, but they basically wanted to spend 15, 20 minutes, find out what you're up to. You know, I'm sure sometimes it's not spam, but they were, you get a lot of requests once you put in like real estate investor, because they have like their VAs sourcing you so that they can contact you. Um, and what I ended up doing is once I was getting on those calls, I was picking up the terms that were being used that I wasn't aware of. And what you start realizing is there's a whole different language in, in commercial real estate, but it's the same language throughout different spaces. So once you kind of learn the language of apartment buildings, you could be a passive investor in self-storage and mobile home parks because the terms, the, the there's little tweaks in the terms, but more or less you kind of know the layout once you kind of learn it. So that was my first, um, like my first recommendation to anybody who's starting out uh, when they're building out their network, just put in the words investor in LinkedIn and whatever you want to do, if you want to do tech, tech investing or angel investing or real estate investing, and you will get, you know, you'll get inundated with requests for like 15 minutes, uh, you know, calls. And once you get on those calls, realize what the terminology is being used, because what you want to do is you want to have that basic language understanding before you start going to like conferences and meetups, because now you go there and you're not, when you don't know anything, you come off as like, Hey, I need a coach and I need a mentor. And that puts off a lot of people versus when you could speak that language, you could actually be like, hey, do you mind getting on a call once a quarter? And I'll tell you what I'm seeing, you know, which operators are crushing it and what are you seeing? It takes a little while to get that, to get that uh, relationship where you could honestly exchange information, but that's usually the flow path I use. I use LinkedIn to learn the language. I started going to conferences to actually meet other investors, other, especially other limited partners. And you got to go to conferences that actually specialize where the speakers are actually syndicators and not just like a wholesaling conference. Mm -hmm. So you'll meet other LP investors there. And when you start meeting them, you know, those are the best uh, sources of information because they could give you honest, actual uh, feedback on how certain operators doing because 
you know, in the operator world, you know, everybody's the best operator because hey, it's partially a marketing game, right? So sure. you'll never get, you know, the full picture. And that's the only way you'll really get an honest answer. Gotcha. Now that's a great technique and, and a good way to do your due diligence. So speaking about the sponsor, because, you know, I, I'm of the mindset that the, the sponsor is the most important part of the deal, right? You've got to have a solid sponsor. So what do you do? What do you look for in a sponsor when uh, you're going out and, and deciding if it's somebody you want to invest with? So I, I couldn't agree more. Like uh, the sponsor usually will make or break the deal. Uh, what I like to look for is expertise in a certain area. So what I want my worst deals have always come when I've had a syndicator go into a new market because then they're kind of learning on your dime. And as a investor, you kind of want to, you want that, uh, that trial and error to already be done before you put your money into the deal. So I, it's more about seeing certain red flags and um, you get to, you start see, picking up more red flags, the more deals you look at. So some things I look at, like I said, is, Hey, you know, is this their first time in the market? If it's not, is that if it's their third deal in the market, how do the other two deals do? So that would, so my big thing is, you know, expertise in that local market. The second big thing for me is property management, because as important as an operator is, I also know that the number one escape goat when a deal starts going bad is always property manager and that they get fired. And once they get fired, that will throw back the business plan for months because then you got to bring the other, the other, um, uh, property manager in it takes time to get them up to speed and you know all this time you know the months are going by so the second thing i look at besides the specific that specific market and the expertise in that market the second thing i look at is that relationship with the property manager obviously some of the bigger syndicators already kind of have in-house property management so they really have no one to blame which is nice uh, but at the same time if it's a third party property management how many deals have they done together? Because property management and syndicator is kind of like a dating game mm -hmm. and you don't want them to do a blind date on your deal. So that's, that's the second really, really big thing. And then the third big thing for me is I look at unit composition. I feel like this gets overlooked. Um, my worst deals have always been the ones with the heaviest con concentration of one bedroom units. Uh, mm -hmm. They just, I, I don't know. I don't know what it is about them, but I think they they foster more of a tra transit type of um, environment versus twos and threes where families kind of move in and families will tend to stay longer in a building. So those are the kind of quick things I look for. You could usually, if you just look at those three things, you could usually screen out most deals fairly quickly. And then there's all those other nuances where it's more about fitting in with your own personal model. Like, Hey, do you believe in class a, or, you know, it's funny as a, as an investor and as a fund operator, it's funny that almost every asset class can be argued is the best asset class. So it's like, Oh, I only do class a because such and such like class a are the, are the officers in a the company they don't get fired during recession. But then you hear a different operator goes, Oh, I only do class B because if something happens with class A and they do get fired, they'll go, they'll go downgrade to class B. And then you usually class C is the broadest because you never really see class D, right? So almost everything else then goes by default into class C, but then class C, the, the operators say, well, this is workhouse 
house this is workhouse housing and you know it's it's the you know it's the bread and butter and it's the most affordable so you always have these arguments of which one is the best and that's more of that will fit into your own personal objective like if you subscribe to the notion that you feel like the workhouse housing will do better or you have a portfolio full of workhouse uh, housing and then you want to diversify with some class a and some class b then you might want to stick to operators who are specifically looking uh, for class a and class b deals because most operators have that niche of which class they focus on yeah no those are i think those are some great tips and, and some good ways to to start to narrow down, I guess one, understand your goals, but start to narrow down different sponsors and, and, and different investments. And uh, yeah, the, the unit composition is, is one I hadn't heard of, but, uh, but, but I, I can definitely see that, you know, it, it's interesting. Like we've got deals where, uh, you know, half the property are studios and, and they absolutely are uh, just just killing it full all the time and, and and the dollar per square foot is uh is the highest you can get and and it just it kind of depends on the market the location you know and, and it just uh so it just, it just really depends but that's an interesting insight in, into those one bedrooms i mean that I guess that is one thing that i look at is you know as we're looking at properties i, I like to see the heaviest concentration in twos and, and i agree with you that like the twos are the most versatile you know, you could have, you could have a couple of roommates, you could have a family, you could have somebody that wants an office, you could, you know, so that there, I, I think there's the most opportunities there to, um, and what I've actually seen recently in Indianapolis is from a, from a, a really a per square foot standpoint, the, uh, the two bed, two baths lead the market in, in per square foot rent. So it's just interesting to see the, the variances between the different, the different unit types. Yeah, great point. And I, I think with COVID, I think that that made the second bedroom that much more important because now you, maybe family has come over and yeah. uh, you don't want to put them in a hotel or especially the office. That's the big one, uh, you know, remote work and you want that second bedroom. Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit more about this investment club you started. You know, what, what was what's the purpose behind it and, and how does it operate? Yeah, so what ended up happening was I... I was looking for a smaller multifamily and I was partnering with an individual and we were out there, we were searching. And at the same time, I invested in my first syndication. This is a few years back. Mm -hmm. And what we were realizing is we were just comparing the numbers and we were saying like, Hey, you know, like this investing in the syndication is like beating this hands down. I was like, we won't have to get involved. We won't have to select the property manager. The projected returns are actually better. There's an actual exit plan versus sometimes small multifamily. You're not going to get that. So we were like, we were really leaning heavily towards that, you know, the syndication world. So what we realized that, hey, if we started an LLC together, we can actually um, invest in more deals because instead of me just investing in one deal and you investing in one deal, we could combine it. And now we could invest in, um, you know, two, three, four, five deals. We ended up meeting a, a third partner and we were all accredited investors this is like a key here because uh, unless you're only going to be doing 506b deals you need to be you know you need to network with other accredited investors because this will actually open the door for you and everybody needs to have active participation 
The moment one person in the club does not actively participate in the decisions, then it becomes a security and you actually need a security document within your investment club. But otherwise, it's just a simple LLC where you know everybody's involved. And because syndications tend to have higher minimums, usually the syndications I, I kind of see are like that $50,000 range where most syndicators now have started bumping it up to 75 and 100. So if you could, if you're going to do one deal yourself, if you network with two other credit investors, all of a sudden now you could kind of do like a mini portfolio of multiple syndications in one shot. And, you know, it spreads out the risks and you get uh, geographic exposure and all the, all those good things. And then we started realizing that we each had very specific backgrounds. So I was, I started really getting a focus on apartment building investing. One of my partners was a big crypto guy. And then the other partner was a big tech startup guy. So even though we all green lighted the individual decisions, now we started bringing in other stuff and it wasn't just apartment building syndications, we kind of have like a well-rounded investment club and it kind of formed naturally. And I would definitely say like, again, that dating reference, uh, it's not something you should be rushed into. I think I think me and my two partners for the investment club, we're talking for six months before we ever, you know, did the operating agreement and the LLC, because we really wanted to see if our styles would complement each other. But once you get the right partners, there are so many pros to the investment club, because now you're just, you're diversifying so much from one deal that you would have done by yourself. Yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting approach. And, and it, it makes a ton of sense. And, and I haven't heard that before. But you just you guys are kind of pulling it together to be one to meet the minimums, right? But but two, not to have, if you were only going to go invest, you know, seventy five thousand in one deal, you can spread that across, you know, three deals now if there if there's three people, right? And so that's uh, that's a really smart idea. And so have you guys uh, just continued? Are there other people in the group now? Is it is it just the kind of the small team, or how how does it work these days? You know, we keep it small. Um, we sometimes will will use our investment club and then we will maybe negotiate better terms on a certain deal and go in with other people, but then they will invest themselves, but then we'll collectively get the same terms. Mm-hmm. We don't want to, we don't want to mess with the actual investment club dynamics because the more people you have, the more involvement they need to be in. Uh, because the, the magic here is for everybody to be actively involved. So if you get this investment club and it becomes too big, then it's going to be really hard not to create a security. Sure. So that's kind of the, the mindset. So we kind of kept it, uh, the involvement ev- of the investment club was actually the fund that I started, which was the SIH Capital Group, where we kind of saw, hey, this is working really, really well. What's mm-hmm. the next step? And then we were like, you know what? Let's do the fund at that point. Gotcha. So the club has evolved into this fund and, and tell me more about the fund. So the fund is an actual security. So what, what I realized is when I was networking with a lot of people who are not in commercial real estate, they would get lost in the weeds very quickly with some of the basic terms, like the concept of uh, waterfalls and, you know, what's a preferred return and confusing a preferred return with it, with a dividend. And Mm -hmm. there was just some basic stuff that they couldn't get over it. And for them, it made the deal look, uh, you know, more confusing or they were like, oh, it's a 70, 30. So that means, you know, I'm losing 30% of my money from day one. They couldn't get over certain concepts of Mm -hmm. investing in commercial real estate. So what I wanted to do is I kind of took it back to my uh, traditional 
background where I was looking for the perfect income, uh, income product that can complement my, you know, traditional portfolio. And I couldn't find it in the stock market. So when I was launching my fund, I wanted to create that, 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 you know, the non-publicly traded read basically that will give people a steadier, consistent, preferred distribution, but without all the backend stuff so that they can kind of have the same type of returns from almost day one from their investment till the end of the fund. Really interesting. So now you are bringing in other folks and then you're deploying the capital across multiple deals and multiple sponsors. Yes, exactly. And then they just get a fixed kind of rate return. It's almost like a REIT that's just not traded. So you're not going to have three years of your yield wiped out if if the market corrects because everything is private security. So there's no traditional uh, there's no traditional assets in the in the actual fund. It's all alternative investments that are private securities with the majority focus in commercial real estate. Gotcha. And what's the benefit for an investor of, of going into your fund versus going in directly into the deal? Is, is it mainly just for folks that, that don't have the, the knowledge to evaluate the deal on their own? So, so you're kind of stamp, stamping your blessing on the deal? Yeah. So there's a few advantages. The biggest one for me is that it, it, it's more for a person who is valuing capital preservation and consistent income. Uh, sometimes if you invest in a singular deal, A, if that single deal doesn't perform well, uh, you're not going to get any distributions, right? You could even lose your money because it's, it's you, you're, you're completely exposed to that one specific deal. Mm-hmm. Uh, so versus if you're in a fund, especially a fund that's already kind of operating, then you get access to all the deals in that fund. So you kind of mitigate a lot of those risks, but at the same time, because my fund has more than just um, apartment buildings, we, we also include notes and ATM funds. It has a higher cash flow from day one. So what I call, usually when you invest in an apartment building, there's like a drag that you get where you invest in year one, it's like a 4%, like a typical value at deal, right? I don't want to uh, generalize this across every single deal, but on a typical deal, you'll get that value at year one where it's like a 4% return. And then year two kind of goes to a five and then a year three, maybe a seven, and then it'll average out, you know, a seven, eight in the life of the, of the deal, but it, it has that wind up period because you've got to cover the closing cost, And, uh, you know, it, it's hard to get a really good deal in the, today's market. So all those factors. So for someone who's looking for a higher income from day one, that's not really what they're going for. So that's where you invest in an income fund because we have notes and we have other assets that allows us to pay basically the full preferred return from day one. I got you. So the fund is focused more on on income and cash flow rather than than appreciation. I mean, there's some appreciation component to it because of the apartments, but uh, really, it's it's for the cash flow. And and because you've you've combined these different things like ATM investments and notes, which are higher cash flow, uh, then you're able to uh, yeah, you're able to get that preferred return right away. Gotcha. Yeah. Oh, very cool. So. Uh, you brought up something that, that I thought was interesting. I wanted you to uh, elaborate on a little bit on the show. You, you said, you know, there's this idea, the fi- so the FIRE movement, maybe you could explain, you know, what that is for folks that don't know, and, and then talk about, you know, what's the biggest thing uh, that's missing? So this is like a unique, uh, I guess, generation where I think it's only been, a, it really took off the last decade or so. So it stands for financial independence, retire early. Um, it's kind of like a concept where people realized if they save money, 
they invest the difference and if they could save up to 25 times their annual expenses, they could actually retire at any time. They don't have to wait till the typical 62, 63 um, age. So as a, I think I was 25 when I discovered the fire movement, obviously like, you know, retiring at 30 sounded really awesome. So, you know, I, I really went down the rabbit hole. I was kind of doing alternative investments at that point. Not, not too much at that point um, because the fire movement's really big on, you know, low cost index funds and kind of that's, that's their, their kind of philosophy. But some people in the fire movement now are starting to gravitate towards commercial real estate and syndications as well. But so what, what I found is what I missed is it's so, it's so focused on the numbers and getting to that, you know, that 25 times your annual expense number and saving, saving, savings, what you end up realizing is that what happens after you retire, right? So it's like, okay, I'm going to, usually the bucket list is something like, oh, I'm going to travel the world. I'm going to homeschool my kids. I'm going to catch up on my Netflix. I'm going to wake up whenever you want. And then what ends up happening is like literally the first month, a lot of these retirees that retire, they do the traveling and then they come home and they're like, all right, I, I got that out of the way. Uh, they, they watch their Netflix and they're like, all right, I get my cues clear. And then it, it's like, oh, I actually hate homeschooling. I'm sending my kids back to school. <laughs> and now it's like, all right, now what do I do all day? And they, they, they have this like tunnel vision to hit this number, but they don't work on your afterlife, so to say. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where I was lucky where commercial real estate really started taking a bigger, bigger role in my life as I started approaching, you know, the fire movement where I was able to blend the two. And I was like, you know, let me slow down. I don't really need to retire at 30. But what I do want to do is when I do retire, I really want I really want to have something that I'm excited about. And that's commercial real estate. Like I know you're, you probably have the same philosophy of me. Each deal is its own, you know, beast. Like you can get yeah. in, you can play with it. It's like, it becomes like kind of like a child and you could be a general partner. You could be a limited partner. It is, you know, it's, it's like putty. And to me, that excites me. And the fact that, you know, it can provide a consistent income for people who really don't know that, that don't have much better alternatives out there. Yeah. Uh, so, so that's kind of what I feel like they, they miss out on. Uh, and it's just my advice for anybody who is gearing towards retirement is to, you can't just have a bucket list of things that you're going to do. You need an actual like it, like, Hey, if you're, you know, a craftsman or you're going to build cabinets or something like, but you need that it because the good chance are that the people around you that you grew up with and your family and friends, they're not retiring at 30. Yeah. I mean, it could be golf. You just, you need a hobby, right? Yeah. <laughs> Your hobby just happens to make you money. Those are the best kind of hobbies. Those are the best kind of hobbies. Yeah. No, I, but I, I think what you're also getting to, what, what I'm taking away from that is the idea of, of saving versus investing. So, so this, like you can save your way to retirement, right? I mean, and, and that is, that's a traditional like 401k route too. It's kind of save your, your way to, to retirement, but you save your way to, to that 25 X number, but then, you know, you, you retire and then kind of, what is it from there? And, and if you're investing versus saving, instead of just socking the money away, you're actually investing in things like, like real property that continue to cash flow, continue to cash flow without your active involvement. Right. And, and you're continuing that income stream uh, versus having kind of a, a set pile that that just dwindles down over time and and you kind of you know you hope it it it, uh, it lasts until you 
till you pass away, you don't need it anymore, right? Versus having those things set aside that are cash flowing for you, that are passive, that where you can still go do the things you want. You can travel, you, you can homeschool your kids if you want. Again, I think I don't think I would want to homeschool my kids either. But if you want to, you could because you got that passive income coming in, right? Yeah, exactly. And that was actually, I, I kind of overlooked that when I was talking about traditional assets. The other big thing I had a problem with is I have three kids and I wanted to leave a legacy and uh, I'm not, you know, my life is not centered around money, but I realized that my life could be better with money. So mm -hmm. I had a huge problem with the concept of, hey, I'm going to retire and this low cost index fund is going to produce a 2% dividend. And the, the alternative there is that I'm going to sell a portion of my portfolio every year so to make up for that 4% that that 25x number equates to. Yep. So I had a huge problem with that because I did not want to retire and be like, well, my game plan now is to start selling assets. Right. I wanted to be like, hey, in 20 years, I'm actually, my assets are bigger than they are today. Right. I just didn't have to work for these last 20 years. Yeah, exactly right. Now, I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that piece up because I think that's critical. And so, uh, so as we're talking in, as we, you know, the, the sh this show focuses, you know, we focus a lot on, on real estate here, obviously. And so th there's something else that, that you brought up around syndications. One is uh, just common misconceptions around real estate syndications. And so enlighten us on what those are so, so that folks can, uh, you know, can wrap their heads around these. So there's a, I, I know I put two, there's actually really three. Um, but I'll, I'll go over the first one is the, the tax friendliness that it, the market is pitched on. Uh, so what ends up happening is when you look at a deal and they're like, well, there's going to be a cost segregation. You're going to get this huge neg negative schedule. Okay. It turns out like a lot of people can't actually use that because it's passive. So yes, it can offset other passive income, mm -hmm. but it's not a passive loss. But what it does is basically it creates a very tax friendly distribution of cash flow during the years of the property that gets recaptured. See what's the, the misconception here that a lot of syndicators don't talk about is the recapturing part of it, mm -hmm. where what you're doing is it's not really tax friendly as much as tax deferred. And for some reason in the syndication world, like sometimes a syndicator will explain it, but sometimes they'll really market it as like, like gives off the impression that like you'll never pay taxes on these gains. Right. And what you're really doing is you're, you're kicking the can down. The, like one C CPA explained it to me really well. This always stuck in my head is you're kicking the can down the road. You know, if you keep planning correctly, then it's great. You could keep kicking that can indefinitely. Right. But you have to plan to go and you have to plan to kick. And then what ends up happening is there's almost like a quicksand effect because let's say you're in like year three and your cost basis now is zero. And now all of a sudden the, the project is exiting a little earlier than you're expecting. Now you're going to get hit with a huge tax hit if you don't, if you don't get into another deal quick. Right. You know, that's that quicksand effect. So the first misconception out there that I want other, you know, limited investors or anybody in commercial real estate to really understand is there's a huge difference between tax deferred and for it to be 100% tax friendly. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a great point. I mean, that, that's how I, how I always think about it is I, even with my own investing is, you know, as long as I'm, yeah, you need to be, you need to be buying and selling in the same year, right? So they can, so they can offset each other. And as long as you're doing that, right, you're kicking that can down the road and, and you can continue to kick that can for as long as you can uh, continue to buy or, or invest in properties. Right. But, but you're absolutely right there. There is a recapture that comes 
at sale. There, there can be a little bit of arbitrage in that the, the recapture rate is lower, you know, typically than, than what you're going to pay in your, your ordinary income. But, uh, but at the same time, I think, I think that's a valid point to bring up. I think the other thing that often gets overlooked is uh, the UBIT tax when you're investing with, uh, from a retirement account and that you, you will fade if it's a, a property that, that is heavily leveraged, which, which most syndication and most real estate investments are, because that's one of the great things about real estate is the ability to, to put leverage on it and increase your returns. But if you're investing from your retirement account, then uh, you've got to educate yourself on what a UBIT tax is and the fact that, that you're probably going to, you know, you're going to face that tax and it's probably going to degrade your return by, by a percent or two, um, depending on, depending on your situation. So I think another, another common thing that is overlooked. That's such a great point. And I think a lot of people sometimes will open up a new self-directed IRA just to invest in like a syndication because they weren't aware, hey, I could invest in, you know, Uncle Johnny's deal over here if I do this. Uh, so that's where it's also important that like what you said with the UBIT tax is also explaining to the custodian or your self-directed IRA source that this is your intention because, you know, there are solo 401ks that, you know, kind of skate around the issue. But the point is you want to ha have your CPA kind of involved in that decision maker. Mm -hmm. So you're not just opening up any self-directed IRA, you're opening up something that makes that pairs well with syndications. Otherwise, like you said, you're going to get hit with the UBIT tax. Yeah. So is a, does a, I actually don't know, does a, four, does a solo 401k actually, is that something where you can avoid the tax? Yeah, so I'm not a you know financial professional thing, but I've I've been looking sure. into this uh, topic with with my fund, um, and what I've been seeing is that the solo 401k avoids it. Uh, I know EQRP is out there, and they kind of mm -hmm. talk about it, but from my understanding, is the solo 401k that the the nuance is you have to have some kind of self employment to open up a solo 401k, right? But um, from my understanding, solo 401k, but that's something you know you should. Uh, talk to the person you're opening up that IRA with uh, so that they can align. So maybe there's a way you can avoid some of those taxes that, you know, that um, operators may not be too quick to tell you about. Yeah, no, that's great information. Good for people uh, to be able to dig in further and do their own research and, and talk to their CPA or, or their uh, IRA custodian about. So that's awesome. All right. What's it, What are the other misconceptions? So one I'll do really quick is the, the term conservative. Like it, it's just it, like I, anybody that knows commercial real estate knows that every single deal you ever, ever will see is somehow conservative. Uh, so when you hear the word conservative, just cross it out because it's just used everywhere. Uh, it's ubiquitous. Well, so it's like, yeah. I mean, no, nobody's marketing like this is the most aggressive yeah. uh, underwriting you could ever have. It's probably not going to happen. Right. Yeah. And right. you know, it's, it's funny, like the first deal you ever look at, you're like, you even tell your friends about it. Like, oh, this deal is awesome. It's conservative. Yeah. And then like after the next 99 deals you look at that also have that word in it, you're like, oh, maybe this word doesn't really mean that much. So, so that was good. I was going to say that it's a really good point. Conservative, I, I, same thing. I've never seen a deal that didn't say conservative and, and conservative means a lot of different things to a lot of people. So what does it mean to you? Like when, when you actually look at underwriting and say, man, these guys are pretty conservative. Like what, what are you seeing? So this is a great point. So I, I kind of want to throw in my third misconception as well. Sure. And this is about the concept of being completely hundred percent passive. So I equate being hundred percent passive to 
um, to, you know, almost like gambling where, you know, you, you have to get to the point where before you wire the money, you actively are involved in the process, the due diligence process. So one part of that, like that I talked about was networking and talking to other people, knowing the language and going to your network and saying, hey, how is that operator, blah, blah, blah. How is that operator doing? You know, all that's active involvement. But the next crucial piece to that is underwriting. Um, underwriting is like this daunting task that most inv new investors are like, get so overwhelmed. But mm -hmm. there's so much great programs out there um, that you can download, you know, a, a, you know, a spreadsheet that usually has a tutorial. It'll walk you through it, not to the point where you're going to be a general partner on a deal, but at a point where you could take that deal and now you can kind of see what the operator's assumptions are. Mm -hmm. And when you start playing with the underwriting, you'll see that there's a few little variables that when you tweak them, create a huge difference in your IRR and all the, the crazy projections. So this is where where you, you tell me like, hey, what do you consider conservative? Mm -hmm. So from, a, from someone who actually looks at, you know, general partnership deals as well, I look at it, how many levers need to be pushed to get that business plan working? Mm -hmm. You know, so you know, for example, I look, I've looked at a deal recently where it was a low income housing play where the contractual rate was a lot higher, but the operator was a big developer and they're not, they weren't keen on filing the paperwork on time. So that means the business plan on day one is literally coming in and filing the paperwork. It's not renovating. It's not putting in the dog park or valet trash or giga service or any other parts of the business plan. So it's a very simple business model to execute because it only needs one thing for it to go right. Yep. So sometimes you look at business plans and you think you're looking at like, like this world's most complicated equation because they got 18 moving parts and, you know, they're going to be putting cell phone towers and they're going to be, uh, you know, uh, laundry machines. And the more moving parts that they need to hit on to hit their numbers, mm -hmm. the less conservative of a deal is to me. And the only way you know that is if you have some basic underwriting where you can say like, okay, you know what? I hate the fact that they used 4%, you know, uh, rent growths and they're only using 1% expense growth. Mm -hmm. I was like, it's not lining up. Uh, so those are the things that it's important for you to have some basic understanding of underwriting. So you can, you can gauge how conservative a deal actually is. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So number of variables that, that need to happen, uh, to go right. Right. And yeah. then, and then as you're underwriting on your own, you, you can, start to take those variables out and say, well, you know, what, what if they don't actually rent the washer and dryers, for example, or, you know, what if uh, the cell phone tower doesn't work out, right? Like what, is, what does that do to, to the deal and the returns? Exactly. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I agree completely with your, your third misconception that like, just because it's called passive doesn't mean you have to, you can be totally hands off, right? You have to do your own education. I mean, it's the same thing with any investment. Like it's not just alternative investments, like with stocks, you should also be doing your research, uh, on the companies and, but, but with alternative investments, uh, especially, right. And it just takes a little more work because like you said, you got to learn how to underwrite yourself and not that it has to be to the extent a GP would do. It doesn't have to be a 20 page underwriting document, but you need to have something where you can validate, their assumptions and, and understand, well, if their assumptions don't go as they say they're going to go, like, what does that do to the deal? Right. And, and are you still comfortable with the returns at that point? 
and oftentimes you, you may, you may well still be right. I mean, like, okay, if they're saying it's going to be a 15% IRR and well, something doesn't go right. And it's still a 10, like that, that's still not bad in many cases, right? If, if that's kind of worst case scenario, but I think it's important to understand that and be able to evaluate that on your own. Yeah. 100%. Like, I like to say that it's passive after you wire the money. Yeah. Right. Cause then there's no kind of like no take backs at that point, but yeah, up yeah. to that point, it's active. Exactly. And I also want to clarify that the work, the learning curve is great in commercial real estate. So you want, you, you know, you do some basic underwriting and due diligence on deal one, you know, when that same operator gets a deal on deal two or three, you're, you're probably, you're probably looking at half the time you're going to spend to the mm -hmm. point where now, you know, I could pull up a deal and probably within two, three minutes kind of red flag it or say like, Hey, I should take a closer look at this because yeah. this looks good. And I'll throw out one more thing. Huge red flag is returns that are just so much higher than the other deals. Cause if you have a couple of operators in your network and a couple of them are in the same market and they're all projecting like 13 to 15% IRR. And all of a sudden now you're getting deals offered to you at 27 or at 34 and it's like a value add deal. Then it's like, okay, you know, what's going on here? Because yeah. either these three operators don't know what they're doing or this is the world's greatest deal. So any outlier like that, I usually consider that like a, almost an immediate red flag. Yeah. And it goes back to, it goes back to the levers that you can, you can pull to, to move a deal. Right. And those things that are, that are going to really move those numbers and goes back to what are the assumptions for those? Like, what are they assuming rent growth is? What are they assuming the cap rate that they're going to exit on is at? right? Like those are some of the things that are going to move the needle the most on any of these investments. So it's, if you get one that's a 24, it's the ability to go in and look at, at what's different than in their assumptions versus the assumptions other operators are making, right? Like other operators might be saying, well, you're going to exit at a six and a half cap rate. And they're saying you're going to exit at a five cap rate. Right. Yeah. And, and that, that could create that difference. But, but like to your point, you got to have the baseline knowledge to be able to go in and be able to see at that level. And, and that's like the, the proper level of diligence to do before you make an investment. Yeah. And that's usually nine out of 10 times. That's usually in the, when you see those outsized returns, that's usually an indication of a newer syndicator because they're trying to kind of get that investor to not really look at the deal, but be so blown away with actual numbers yeah. where they're going to overlook, you know, experience and everything like that, where the, where the more experienced operators know that, Hey, we're probably going to hit 18 on this, but we're going to say 13. And then, well, we have, you know, a margin of error where, yeah. you, you know, as a general partner, like uh, we look at deals too, and there's deals we look at and we underwrite it and we're like, all right, wow, this is actually too high. Let, let's bring this down. Yeah. And, you know, we'll leave some upside where we'll tell them about the upside, but we won't project that upside because you want to be careful where, you know, if you, you project 18 and you give someone 17 and 17 is a great return, but, you know, they're going to be upset because you didn't hit your numbers. Yeah. Yeah. You, you want to under promise and over deliver, right? Exactly. We, we do the same thing. If I feel like the returns are just looking too high, I, I'll just, you know, we'll throw in additional reserves, which, which makes the deal safer. You know, we'll, we'll uh, maybe not project. I mean, and if there's an income stream that, that I'm not 100% confident in, like, like we've done this with, with like washer dryer rentals before, where we're like, you know, we're going to buy washer dryers and rent them back. And, and actually, it's, it's done, it's been a great program for us. But, but when we first started doing it, we didn't, we underwrote the expense, but not the income because we're like, well, it might work. It, it, it may not work. And we didn't need that extra income to, to make the deal actually 
uh, attractive. So it's something like you said, you tell people about, but we were able to leave that off the table. And, and when it did work, well, you know, we looked like heroes, right? But, yeah, but, if, exactly. but, but it's all about setting expectations, right? It's really important. It's like, if you tell people you're gonna get them 15 and, and you get them 13, well, people are gonna be disappointed. If you told them you're gonna get them 10 and you get them 13, everybody's happy, right? So it's just, it's all about perception and, and setting the right expectations. And, and I agree that, you know, the, like, like when we talk about conservative, I mean, the, the things that I look for and try to do is, is one is just like the amount of reserves in the deal. I mean, I think that's a big one that, that people miss out on is, you know, are, 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 is there extra cash for things to go wrong that are unexpected, right? And I think that's a really important piece in, in any deal because real estate's all about solving problems and inevitably something is going to go wrong. I mean, I mean, something's gonna something's gonna happen that you you didn't expect, right? And so I think having that extra cash set aside for a rainy day is is an important aspect. Um, so Dennis, one one thing I wanted to ask you because to that point, uh, you know, a a firm at a, at a the head underwriter at a firm I used to work at, he had had a great quote, and it was, uh, you know, every every pro forma is wrong, like every underwriting model is wrong. It's just you're either wrong positive or you're wrong negative because it's just it's your best guess, right? Nothing's ever going to go exactly like you put it down on paper. Uh, so to that point, how much do you actually focus on those return numbers that people are throwing out IRRs and, and, and cash on cash and things? How much do you actually focus on that number when you're evaluating the deal ver versus focusing on the other aspects of like, sponsor experience, the market it's in, the location, you know, and, and invest on those factors versus just saying, oh, this one's saying 15, that one's saying 17, like, like I want to go with the 17. Yeah, I, I think this is just about becoming a more mature investor. I think when you're, when you're new, it, it's so hard to get away from that higher number. Mm -hmm. But the more experienced investors that I talk to and myself at this point, we hardly look at the pro forma. We just mm -hmm. want to make sure it's not an outlier, mm -hmm. right? We want to make sure it's at least, I, I, most deals, you know, if they're not hitting, I would say 13 IRR, I don't really see them. Uh, so as long as they're hitting over 13 and it's a reputable operator, I care much more about the team, the operator, the, the business plan, how many levers are being pushed. The financing is huge. Mm -hmm. You know, what kind of debt do they have on the product? Uh, those are the things that I look at focus on the pro forma now so much. The other one I heard a uh, performer besides the one you mentioned was performers Latin for lies. So I heard that was a good one. Um, yeah, I, you don't, you don't, when you get more experience, you don't give too much credence to, to performer. The only thing I do like to see is I do sometimes like to compare the performer to the T12. Um, sometimes when I get access to the T12, uh, most, uh, most syndicators would share. And that's usually good because then you could see how aggressive the assumptions are from the actual numbers to uh, what numbers they are projecting. But besides that, uh, most of the time, if I have an existing relationship with the operator, I, I don't, I don't get too uh, in the weeds with the performer. Gotcha. Yeah. I, I think it's a good point. That's what's what I thought you were going to say. So I, I wanted to, wanted to, to tee that one up because I think those, those are the critical things and, and, you know, the, the performer is your best guess at the point in time when likely you have the least information about the property because, because you don't even own it yet. You know? And so I think it's just important for people to understand. Well, Dennis, uh, you know, but before I let you go, t tell us about the, the book that you wrote and, 
you know, just tell it what inspired you to write it and, and then tell us a little bit about what's inside. Yeah. So the book is called Alternative Investment Almanac, Expert Insights on Building Personal Wealth in Non-Traditional Ways. You could find it on Amazon. Um, just if you search Dennis Shapiro or the Alternative Investment Almanac. And what I realized was throughout my years of networking, I was getting some really cool opportunities that it wasn't just apartment buildings. It's, it's this like almost like a fraternity where you're getting access to wineries and you're getting access to ATM funds and note funds. And what I realized was these, these are really cool niches that a lot of people aren't aware of. They don't, they don't know that they exist. And then when I spoke, when I, when I was, when I was networking with people who just really do stocks and bonds, every time you mention alternative investment, there's like this Ponzi scheme uh, association that they would get from them. So I wanted to kind of debunk the myths and say like, hey, there's, I think I have nine alternative investments in there. Most of them are uh, derivatives of commercial real estate, like apartment buildings, mobile home parks, self storages. I have some life insurance policies. I, I did a chapter on uh, the infinite banking concepts. Um, and what I wanted to do is there are plenty of great books out there. So if you wanted to read an apartment buildings, there's, you know, there's Brian Burke's and there's Joe Fairless's and there's 300 pages of knowledge. But what I wanted to give was for an, an and newly accredited investor, or even one that's approaching accreditation, that they could read a chapter and the chapter would be about just one asset class. So it's a high level intro into the asset where it's not, you know, you're not going to get a PhD from it, but you'll get enough to understand what it actually looks like to invest in an apartment building. And then my favorite part is each chapter ends with Q and A's. So I got some really awesome speakers where they each answered the exact same questions and they talked about their specific assets. So you could you could see what a well-accomplished apartment building um, investor, I had Brian Burke and Andrew Cushman on, and between them, they probably have like 20,000 units. So you could see someone who, you could see that combination of knowledge just answer the exact same questions and you can kind of see what they're saying. And then at the same time, when you go to the ATM funds, you could see someone who's you know invested in millions of dollars worth of ATMs, what they're saying to the exact same questions. So it gives you kind of some kind of basis. And um, I really wanted it to get out there that, hey, you know what, that these, these asset classes aren't as mysterious. It's not like a secret society. It's out there. They're private securities. So most of them aren't heavily marketed, but they are out there and they're not as complicated as, as most financial advisors would like you to think they are. And that, that's really what the book is for. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. I'm, I'm definitely going to have to check it out and read it. And I think that that's an awesome kind of bite-sized approach, very approachable for, for people that are, that are just getting into this, you know? Uh, yeah. I, I, I hate to hear every time I hear somebody tell me that their fine, their financial advisor told them that, that real estate is risky. You know, yeah. I, th I think it's, it's the exact opposite. I think, I think uh, the stock market where, where something can drop 30, 40% in a single day, that is a pretty high level of risk uh, versus kind of the, the, the steady, uh, steady apartment cash flows or, or other types of investments. So, so I appreciate you putting that out there. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So Dennis, uh, before I let you go, I'm going to take you through our, our keys to success round. There's four questions I want to ask you. The first one is, uh, you know, if you, and, and this is, this is right up your alley. If you could only ask a deal sponsor one question, what should that question be? Worst deal without hesitation that that's a, you want to make sure that they do have a worse deal under their belt. 
and what did they learn from the worst deal? Um, hopefully, you know, they'll have an answer ready. Um, I, I remember I had one, one famous operator. He was like, well, my worst deal was uh, with the global financial crisis. And he came out of pocket and he covered the mortgage for two, three years. What a great answer. Okay, that, that's, that's great. Thank you. Uh, the, the, one, the red flags are the ones that say I never had a bad deal. You know, those are the ones you're like, okay, <laughs> thank you. Have a good day. Right on. What are you most proud of in your career? Uh, I would definitely say the book. That's, uh, I think I started it last year uh, between the book and the fund. Um, actually, I, I would say the fund. Uh, I had a couple of people who were approaching re like retired age and they were so frustrated with the income options that were there. And for them to go through the whole learning process would have probably not been feasible. But for them to have, you know, a one-stop shop where they could have went, they reached out, they felt comfortable, they got to know me, and now they're getting much more income that they would have gotten uh, alternative. So that that's, you know, I'm helping people, you know, reach their, you know, retirement goals, and that's a great feeling. Yeah, th those are my, those are my favorite too, where you have folks that have like just been socking away money in their savings account because they didn't have another option and then they, they learn about about these and and all of a sudden they're getting you know seven eight percent a year in cash and then they're getting that appreciation i mean it's just so cool to to see the response and and the impact that you can have on people's lives and giving them access to to something that they didn't know about so yeah, yeah. very cool and what's a what's a book that everybody should read it could be your <laughs> own I'm going to selfishly put out my own because <laughs> one thing I'll have to throw out there is if anybody's ever uh, wants to write a book, it's the book writing process is surprisingly quick. The editing process is surprisingly a hundred times longer than you ever expected. Uh, what ends up happening is every time my editor uh, made a change or sent it back to me, I had to like almost reread the entire book to kind of get the feel of it. So I ended up reading my book like between 30 to 50 times. So it's kind of indoctrinated at this point. So I'll definitely say my book for now. Um, yeah, the Alternative Investment Almanac. Uh, it's, it's kind of my pride and joy for now. Very good. And then what is your number one key to success? It has to be with alternative investments. Like I'm pretty firm on this. If you're not networking, you shouldn't be investing in alternative investments. So it's it's networking. Uh, I've gotten my best information. I've gotten the best referrals to operators. I've gotten my network to send me potential investors. Uh, you're you're gonna live and die on your network. Yeah, one hundred percent. And Dennis, if people want to uh, catch up with you, if they want to learn more about what you're doing, where can they find you? The best place is sihcapitalgroup.com. Uh, when, when you go into the site, I have two free eBooks. So what I did was part of my book had the Q and A's and part of my book had the content. So I created abridged versions of both of them. So if you go on the website, you could find the eBooks for each one of them. Uh, so if you're not in the mood to read 300 pages on alternative investments, it's more bite-sized at 30 pages. Again, that's sihcapitalgroup.com. Awesome. Well, thank you, Dennis, for coming on, sharing so much information. I think you dropped some real gems today that, that can make folks better investors. So thanks again for coming on and have a great rest of the day. Same here. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Ritter on Real Estate. Hit the subscribe button to make sure you don't miss out on the content that will make you a better investor. Also, visit KentRitter.com for articles, videos, and tools curated just for passive investors. Until next time, this is Kent Ritter with Ritter on Real Estate. Now go out and invest like a pro.